Hey everyone, this is Lynn Bartim, and you are listening to the Apex Hour on KSUU Thunder 91.1. In this show, you get more personal time with the guests who visit Southern Utah University from all over, learning more about their stories and opinions beyond their presentations on stage. We will also give you some new music to listen to and hope to turn you on to some new sounds and new genres. You can find us here every Thursday at 3 p.m. or on the web at seu.edu slash apex. But for now, welcome to this week's show here on Thunder 91.1. All right. Well, welcome in, everyone. It is Thursday. It is 3 p.m. And that means it is time for the Apex Hour. This is Lynn Vartan, and it's fall here at SUU. You're listening to KSUU Thunder 91.1. And today we had such a cool Apex event. I think it's kind of been a favorite of everyone for um, several reasons. And that is we saw live birds, raptors. Um, we saw an owl and a peregrine falcon. And they were all uh, family members from Hawkwatch International. So I have two awesome uh, members of Hawkwatch International uh, here with me in the studio today. And we're going to start out with some introductions about who you guys are and what you do for Hawkwatch. So who wants to go first? Melissa, you want to go first? Yeah, of course. So my name is Melissa Halverson, and I'm the Education and Outreach Director at Hawkwatch International. And I know people came for the birds. It's okay. We're used to it. Like, I don't worry about what's on my shirt or whatever, because they're not looking at me. They're looking at the birds. So you probably get that all the time. All the time. Yeah, I don't know. People were kind of entranced by your speaking today, because you're, <laughs> you really told the story. I mean, you started out and I want to get into this, of course, but you started out talking about, about DEET and about all the different things that affected birds and how they relate to our ecosystem and, and our bodies and things that affect us. So you were a very compelling speaker. Oh, well, thank you. And and just to clarify, it was DDT. Oh, sorry. DEET is safe and you can use it and should so you don't get Lyme disease and other right. bad insect right. stuff. Yes. No, it's Absolutely fine. Absolutely, my mistake. Um, well, but that really is a, actually a good tie-in to what Hawkwatch does because our mission at Hawkwatch is that we conserve the environment through education, long-term monitoring, and scientific research on raptors as indicators of ecosystem health. So DDT was a chemical pesticide for those who weren't at the at the event, and it really ended up impacting raptors in a big way. As it was concentrated in their bodies, as it was sprayed in the environment, the raptors started laying eggs that had thinner shells. And so when they'd incubate the eggs, the eggs would crack and the babies wouldn't survive. So we realized that this pesticide was problematic And it wasn't only problematic for raptors. Down the road, we also realized it causes reproductive health issues in humans as well and is a potential carcinogen and has a lot of other ill effects in large amounts. And so when we talk about why do we study raptors at Hawkwatch, I like to use the DDT story because raptors are really great indicator species. They are an animal that is really sensitive to their environment. And because they're at the top of the food chain, they require a really stable ecosystem underneath them. Everything has to be working properly in order for them to reproduce. So when we see a problem in an ecosystem, a lot of times it will show up in things like raptors or other predators at the top of the food chain first. So when we see their populations change and they are struggling, then we know we need to investigate deeper into that ecosystem. 
ecosystem. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, we have been doing this at Hawkwatch for 35 years. Yeah, I was going to ask yeah. you about that. And how, so how did Hawkwatch get started as an organization? Yeah, so Hawkwatch began with a man named Steve Hoffman. And he actually was from back east. He worked, um, I believe, in Pennsylvania at Hawk Mountain for a while. But he got his master's degree at Utah's, uh, University of Utah. Mm-hmm. Nope, I'm wrong. Utah State University. Oh. That's the right one. So he came out there to get his master's degree. And while he was off hiking around, at the time, most scientists believed that raptors didn't really migrate in the West. They just kind of moved around the region. Oh. And so there was a long history of migration monitoring on the East Coast, but no one had really done it in the Western half of the country. And because there were a lot of raptors out here and they're easy to see in the desert, you yeah, know, right. um, there was kind of this assumption that they just kind of hung out. And he saw evidence to the contrary. And so he actually began getting volunteers to climb up these mountain peaks in the fall um, across the Intermountain West and start basically recording data. And so because of that, we have 35 years of migration data. And that's a really important baseline. It's not sometimes it doesn't seem very exciting to think about I'm going to sit on a mountain and count every raptor I see all day long for three months at a time, right? Mm -hmm. Which is essentially what our our migration crews do. But that information over that long period of time helps us to establish trends. So we can see things like, for example, the American kestrel, which is our smallest falcon in North America, has experienced population declines over the years. And not only do we have data that shows that, but we can compare it to other sites on the eastern half of the country that also have data that shows that. So overall, we know there's something happening with kestrels. And then we can use that information to tailor the research that we're doing to specific species that need our help. And so now we have a project based around American kestrels, where we have volunteers, it's actually a community science project, that help us monitor kestrel boxes all over the place. And um, we band the babies when they're old enough, and we, um, you know, measure them and weigh them and get all this information. And basically, we're studying how they react across an urban gradient. So every Everything from a farmland to like a wilderness area to people's backyards and golf courses and city parks and oh, right. even urban environments. Kestrels are have been known to use those places. Yeah. So we're trying to see what's what's the deal. Why are these kestrels struggling? And that's still research in progress. So we don't have a definitive answer yet. Oh, my gosh. So many questions. Okay. So, uh, but first, I want to make sure that Isa gets a chance to introduce yourself and kind of tell us what you do. And I know that you've participated in, as you got into Hawkwatch with a lot of these um, migration observations and work. So tell us about who you are and what you do for Hawkwatch. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, My name is Isa. It's like Lisa without the L. And I'm an educator at Hawkwatch. I first started at Hawkwatch in 2017 as a migration crew member at the Bonnie Butte site, which is in Oregon. It's really beautiful. It's um, across from Hood Mountain. And it's absolutely breathtaking. I think it's one of the prettiest sites. It's hard to pick though. Um, and I also did a little bit of eagle nest searching for Hawkwatch. And then I did another migration season in the Monsanto Mountains. And then I moved into the education department and have been an educator since. So I have definitely done the, the, <laughs> a full season of sitting on the mountain and counting rafters as they fly by. And it's both incredible and very exhausting. I mean, you're out in the elements nine hours or more a day. And yeah, I want to hear more about that. So what is that kind of signing up for a migration team like? You sign up for a certain period of time, and then do you choose the location? Is the location choose for you? What gear do you need? What's a day in the life like of that? 
Yeah. Um, I think in, in general, like sometimes you get to choose your site and sometimes there's maybe like a handful of sites that, um, you can choose from because sometimes certain sites have returning crews or certain returning members just depends. Um, when I first worked my first migration season at Bonnie Butte, um, I had no idea what to expect. I wasn't really entirely sure what to, you know, what it was going to be like kind of fresh out of college. Um, but I took my tiny little Mazda 3 hatchback and drove it up a very rugged road that <laughs> should have had a vehicle with much higher clearance on it. And um, it was there was a crew of five of us, and we pitched our tents up in the um, forest up there. And we had a nice little vault toilet um, that the Forest Service <laughs> wow. helped maintain. And uh, we had a beautiful little observation site where we would do our counting. So we had... we. Not all sites have an opter or a blind um, site where we are like banding raptors, um, but all of our migration sites have an observation right, site okay. where you're like, you know, counting raptors as they're migrating south. Um, but Bonnie has both a blind and the ob site. So it was my first time ever like holding a bird in hand and learning how to kind of take data off of a bird in hand, yeah. so like measuring wing cord or a keel or measuring, you know, bill lengths here, stuff like that. And it was the first time I really honed in my observation skills for IDing a raptor in flight, which is just, it's very different than IDing a raptor or a bird that is perched. You know, you're really looking for overall flight behavior or the shape of the bird. Um, so it's, it's really a cool way to hone in on your ID skills and yeah. just kind of become a, you know, more of an expert or, or experienced in just... I mean, when you first start, are you comparing to pictures? Like, are you kind of like, okay, that yeah. looks like this and, you know, is that yeah. how it works? Um, they recommend a book called um, Raptors at a Distance, I think is what it's called. Oh, wow. And so like they specifically have, at a yeah. distance. Cool. Yeah. So they have tons and tons of photos of raptors that are flying by so you can see the differences in color morphs yeah. um, or even like the differences in plumage for like different species or ages right because hatchier birds are going to look different than adult birds right. and with even with eagles you have different kind of subsets of plumage as they age from year one to five or older um, and then in the back of this book are just pages of silhouettes because oftentimes when raptors are flying in the sky, they're backlit. And so you don't get any color. Sometimes they just, you know, look like a silhouette flying through the sky. So you're really depending on that overall kind of shape or like gestalt of a bird. I and never their thought of that behavior. Oh, that's so cool. Oh my gosh. So did it come easy to you or did you feel like you needed a good, like several months? I oh, mean, I, I think certain birds are easier than yeah, others. Probably. Yeah. Uh -huh. Um, I think the hardest learning curve was really differentiating between um, elusive species like exhibitors like Cooper's hawks and sharpshin hawks are really hard to differentiate for anyone, even experts. They've done studies where, you know, they have really, really qualified, um, you know, biologists try to ID a flying Cooper's hawk or sharpshin hawk and, you know, they don't always get it right either. So they're just... They look really similar. Male um, Cooper's hawks and female sharpshinned hawks, just even the size and plumage. Like they have almost the exact same. Oh, wow. Um, even in a close-up picture, it can be hard to tell. Oh, sometimes. wow. Like really, really close 
looking. And, right. And so how long are you out on a shift? I mean, do you take a shift and, and you look at the sky for four hours? I mean, what's it like no. in action? Um, it's, it is full on. <laughs> so you get one day off a week okay. and um, the remainder of that week you're up on the mountain and you typically are counting from nine to five. So you're counting that wow. full day. Wow. Mm -hmm. So, and you're up there when you're doing observation, you're up there typically with, you know, two other counters and you have kind of a systematic way of combing the sky, right? Where you're, you're kind of starting towards, um, the Southern yeah. um, side of the sky and moving northward yeah. to make sure that you're trying to kind of scan is yeah. what we call it systematically right and you kind of are looking up and down and we have this kind of clockwork of like one o'clock two o'clock type thing where you're you break up the sky in certain um increments yeah. that are numbered and we even have like little kind of landscape photos where we are able to name maybe distant ridges or or f like land features. So if someone's having trouble identifying a bird that's maybe flying over a really distant ridge, and you can say, you know, a one glass full over the knob, and the knob might be this like mountain feature, and one glass full means if you take your binoculars and you point it at the knob, then you kind of move one your glass, binoculars yeah. upwards one glass full. So one full kind of, you know, lens. Yeah. Upward. Oh my gosh, I love hearing about all the lingo and everything. That's so cool. Well, thank you for sharing that. Melissa, how did you get involved with Hawk Watch? I mean, I know we saw pictures of maybe some treasured family time that led to your love for birds. Yeah, so I grew up, my dad was um, a biologist for the Utah State Division of Wildlife Resources. And so when I was a kid, there was nothing better for me than getting to be out with my dad in the field. And I really think that that shaped a lot of my experience with science because what I did in the classroom didn't look like that or feel like that. Yeah. But I understood what was being taught because I had practical application and experience from doing the stuff with my dad. Um, and that's a whole other thing we can talk about later of how science education is changing yeah. to be more reflective of that. But I had this really great experience and just grew up really loving nature and animals and the outdoors and ecology was something I was really passionate about. But at the time I went to college in the dinosaur ages, there was no such thing as an environmental education degree or an informal education degree. It just wasn't something that people considered a career. So I actually ended up pursuing a degree in English because my second great love is stories, mm. storytelling. And, you know, I think we learn so much as a species by hearing each other's stories. So while I was in college, I discovered a program called the Student Conservation Association that does these internships. And so I applied for that and I ended up in Virginia at the Yorktown National Historic Park, a colonial national historic park. So it's a national park. And um, I worked there as an intern for a couple months, and then they hired me on to continue as a seasonal park ranger. And I found this magical world where you taught about ecology using stories. You know, that's what park rangers do, right? When you go to a park ranger program, when you have a good park ranger, they tell you these stories about the land and the people and the animals and everything. And, and it's inspiring, right? Like who hasn't, I'm sure a lot of people have had that experience of like being in a place and getting that place-based experience with a really 
skilled facilitator, it can be life changing. Yeah. And, and that's kind of what happened for me is I realized this is what I love and it's what I want to do. And so I just kept pursuing ways to do that. And so I was in the park service for several years. Um, and then, you know, as my life changed, I just was always looking for a job that used that skill. So I worked in nature centers and zoos and aquariums and, you know, any place where I could connect people to nature. And so I was working in the field and I saw that Hawkwatch had this position open. So about two years ago now I applied and, and here I am. And I just, I really, I really love it because Hawkwatch in some ways is really the perfect blend because unlike a place like a zoo or an aquarium that has to sell tickets, we are purely a, a nonprofit research and education type program, right? Yeah. Like we are in the purest sense of the word, a scientific organization. We're doing science. And then I get to take this real science that's happening now in real time and bring it to people. And, you know, I feel like my job really is to kind of be the intermediary between this kind of dense scientific content and like this public audience. And I'm, I just feel like telling stories is the perfect tool for that. And so, you know, I just, I love what I do. And, and nowadays you can go get a master's degree in environmental education and, you know, it's, it's recognized as a career now, yeah. which really makes me happy because I think if you think about some of the best science learning experiences you've ever had in your life, I think it's a lot of times happening in a national park or a state park or right. in a museum right. or in a, you know, a zoo, those yeah. kinds of places really have a powerful impact on people. So I love it's it. It's great. Well, thank you for telling both of your stories. Um, I think it's time for a song. Well, you know, uh, those of you who listen to the show know that I sometimes try to pick songs that have something to do with the topic uh, in in some way, shape, or form. And um, the first song I have for you is called Falcons. So I thought that might be, you know, a little bit related. And it's by Amanda Bergman. So check it out. You're listening to KSUU Thunder 91.1. Fire slow, lock and leave it go I've never been so hurtful before Leaving love in the haze Falcons circling for days Always firing up another scent Following the stream so carefully Trying to find another piece of the map they would just feel here Never get it right Even easy getting closer No, I can never dance like you Keep getting wrong, keep getting wrong And by the second that we fall We must stay long Trying not to be replaced 
Right. Well, welcome back. That song was Falcons by Amanda Bergman. And the reason we played Falcons is because I have in the studio with me Hawkwatch International. Uh, and so Isa and Melissa here are telling us all about that uh, organization. And we're talking about raptors and all kinds of things related to those amazing birds, which we got to meet two of today. And I'd love to get into that at some point, too. But one of the things I'd love to talk about now is is, you know, uh, Hawkwatch International is, as you said, a nonprofit that is um, education and research oriented. Um, but within that, you have lots of different projects. And I'd love to hear about some of those projects, what they are, you know, and how they relate to the ecological landscape and all those things. So what are some of the projects that Hawkwatch engages in? Well, the biggest and longest running one, of course, is migration that we've talked about right. already, right? That's that's kind of how we started. And then our science projects kind of fall into three categories. So we have what we call community science and long-term monitoring. So that's migration. And then a lot of our projects that rely on volunteers and community members to help us collect data and do the things that we need to do. So we have some projects there that work with kestrels and uh, forest owls. So we right. study the five smallest species of forest owls, which are all incredibly adorable. Oh, which that I project know. was started by um, 
Dave Oliar. Dr. Dave Oliar. They're yeah. like the baby version of, they're like the little version or bird version of Baby Yoda. I mean, they're the yes. cutest things ever. You can't, you can't not fall in love with a little owl. And of course, they're not babies. They're fully grown. Right. But having a different scale of sizes allows many species of owls to live in one place right. without having to directly compete for resources. So we're studying those owls and we have lots. I mean, all of these projects have partnerships. So the forest owls, we partner with the Earthwatch Institute, which is actually kind of like an ecotourism on steroids. Like you get to ah. sign up for conservation projects. So it's like your vacation, but you're doing science in the field with cool. scientists. So people can sign up to come learn about forest owls and help out with some of our surveys. And that's a partnership between Hawkwatch and Earthwatch and mm -hmm. people can sign up. And I guess we should say to anybody listening, um, how can they get involved if they want? If you go to our website, hawkwatch.org, um, there is all kinds of links about volunteering and information about the organization and everything will be there on that website. Okay, so cool. it's pretty easy to find. So that's one part. Mm -hmm. What else? Hmm. So we talked migration, kestrels, forest owls. And then we have conservation, conservation science. Conservation science kind of does a whole different array of things. Um, earlier, Melissa was talking about golden eagles in the West Desert, and that has been a really big and kind of long-running project um, where, you know, we've had crews historically go out into the West Desert and search for eagle nests. That was, like, a big thing. Um, and and where then kind of do eagles nest? Eagles nest on cliffs. Okay. Yes, they like to be up high, and they often kind of come back to the same nest year after year. So, oh, really? Yes, eagle, golden eagle nests will be incredibly big. They'll be, you know, over a meter, you know, wide, and sometimes they'll be, you know, over six feet tall. It just really? depends on how long that nest has been used and where it is. Um, but they'll... Yep, they'll look for those nests and then they'll monitor them throughout the season and kind of also monitor the adults and the chicks. And um, there's a lot that goes on there. And we have another scientist that has also kind of uh, more recently been studying parasites with those nestlings. Mm. Um, and there's going to be a lot more that develops on that project. That's very new. So, yeah, they're, they're looking at toxicology and parasite yeah. impact on these baby eagles. Oh, wow. And, um, you know, this is like, it, it's unpublished. It's still like very much in the process. But we looked at the habitat issue that I talked about today with cheatgrass and, and problems with prey, not having the jackrabbits that they rely on. And now we're looking at like, what are other factors that could influence that? Yeah. And so our, our conservation science team also does what we call our professional services. So we have some times when somebody wants to say, build a solar farm or a wind farm or whatever. And they need someone who is a professional and an expert in raptors to come out and survey the area, make sure that wherever they build that, they're making a good decision. So we help create scientific data that enables land managers to make the best decision for protecting the raptors. And right. do you find that that's a very, like people are always thinking of that? Or is that something that you have to educate people about? I think in many instances that happens because it's a federal requirement. Oh. Before you can build a project, um, you know, for, let's say a wind farm wants to go up, they are required to put together an environmental impact statement. Right. And so people like environmental consulting companies or maybe in this case Hawkwatch would be, you know, contracted to, to conduct some surveys that they would then use those results to help put together that environmental impact mm -hmm. statement. 
And one of the things that came up while we were having lunch was that that the these sorts of um, relationships, particularly in Utah, have been really positive. Uh, it, that you were saying, you know, um, builders and farmers and people are kind of working together um, to to keep things on par. Yeah, well, especially that's the case in when we talk about sage grouse. So if you fo- if you're a person who kind of follows, you know, ecology news, um, the sage grouse is a bird that's kind of on the cusp of potentially being listed as an endangered species, and and that could be good for the sage grouse. Obviously, it offers them a lot of protections, but it can have some really serious economic disadvantages for the people who use the land where the sage grouse live. Right, right. so. There's kind of this coalition that has been built up in the Intermountain West of both people who use the land financially for things like ranching and farming and things like that, also people who want to use it for recreation, and then people who are scientists and conservationists who just want to protect the land and the species. Mm -hmm. And so they are working together to try and address the issue before it gets to the point that the federal government has to step in and list the species. So that's some of the newest work we're doing is kind of around some of the interactions between raptors and other birds and these sage grouse and trying to figure out, you know, are eagles really an issue for sage grouse? Are they, are they having any impact on the population or is it something else or is it a combination? So we're looking at the places where eagle territories overlap with sage grouse territories. One of the things that that reminded me of is um, you were talking about species getting on the endangered species list. And um, in your talk today, you were talking about the peregrine falcon, which we got to meet today, which is so exciting. But I didn't realize the history of it um, in relationship to being on or off the endangered species list and, and, and how that changed as a result of a lot of the work of organizations like Hawk Watch. I wonder if you might highlight that a little bit. Yeah. So, um, peregrine falcons were listed in 1972 and then they were delisted in 1999. And the same was true about the same timeline for bald eagles. So this is America's bird, right? This right. is our national symbol. And, um, and I mentioned earlier about DDT, that was the driving cause of this huge decline in population numbers. But really, in order to bring back these birds, it took a, a coalition like we're talking about with the sage grouse. It wasn't any one individual entity or organization that made it happen. Um, really, what had to happen is that once we understood that chemical pesticides were the driving factor, people had to decide where, where it's, what's my value? What do I value? Right. Do I want to make sure I can just kill every bug that I come in contact with? Or do I recognize that those insects are part of an ecosystem and I'm part of that ecosystem too. And so when I'm putting poison into it, you know, what does that really mean in the long run? And so we, I, I mentioned Rachel Carson who wrote the book silent spring, which was what swung public opinion in the direction of like, we need to be more realistic about how we're using these chemicals. We can't just indiscriminately spray. And Carson was never an advocate of getting rid of pesticides entirely, which some of her critics claimed. She really just said, we need to understand what we're putting into the environment and what its impacts are going to be down the road. So basically, for in order for a species to be delisted, they have to reach a stable population um, usually there's a, they have kind of a specific range and it's kind of a committee decision. There's no like, 
once you have 200 of whatever, that's off, you know, it's going to depend on what the animal is and what their habitat is and what their historic presence in the area was. All those kinds of things go into making that decision. But generally what it means when a species is delisted is that it has reached a population and is stably reproducing and maintaining itself without a lot of human intervention. And and one thing that really allowed peregrines to do that is that they adapted to living among humans, especially in cities. Right. So they'll actually nest. They love these cliffs, yeah, right? So they'll nest on skyscrapers. And you have these kind of alleyways of sky- skyscrapers, picture like New York. Right. And it's like a canyon. It's it, There's an updra- updraft coming off of that. makes it easy to fly. There's a high place to put your nest. And peregrines are bird specialists. And there's a very abundant food source in cities, yeah. which is pigeons. Yeah. So frankly, it's a win-win, mm-hmm. right? We have something that helps control pigeon populations. And they'll actually use falconers. They'll hire falconers to fly their birds over places where pigeons and starlings and other birds are causing problems because once like that an airport, yeah, airports and orchards and all kinds of things. Because once that predator comes out, it's really interesting to to observe the change in the the wildlife. So at my house, when I see a cat in the yard, all the birds are calling to each other. They're warning calls, right? Yeah. Like, watch out, watch out. There's a cat. When I see a raptor in the area, it goes silent because they recognize that. Like they're that that's a predator, yeah, right? Like a cat, a cat's yourself. on the ground, but another bird is yeah. they can get you wherever you can go. And it's really interesting to see how instinctively they understand that. So they really respond to other birds that are predators. Ah, so it's so cool. it's a powerful tool. And can I I just want to mention one other thing about our science projects yeah. because I said there's kind of three. So yeah. we have our our community science and long-term monitoring. We have conservation Conservation. science. And I really need to give a shout out to our international programs. Wow. So the other area we do work is in Africa right now. Oh, wow. And we have a team that works specifically on vultures and some species of eagles and now the black harrier in different parts of Africa. And what's a black harrier? That one uh, I don't know. Harriers are a type of raptor that are really interesting. They have a facial disc almost like an owl. Oh. But they their body and their flight patterns look more like a hawk. Oh. Um, they're around. We have black harriers are in Africa, but we have northern harriers here. Okay. And if you see a raptor really flying low down over a field and kind of weaving back and forth and just staying really low over the tops of the grass. That's often a harrier. Oh. They're really fun to watch. Yeah. They hunt. have long slender wings and they also typically have a bit of a longer tail. Oh, and they have cool. a white butt patch. Uh. <laughs> At least northern harriers. Yes, do. northern harriers yeah, do. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. So a harrier is just another type of raptor. Cool, so cool, cool. yeah, we're doing a lot of work there. Vultures are in serious trouble in that part of the world. Yeah. And um, all over the world. All over Vultures the- are in, in grave trouble all over the world. They and are and so the important. Most and globally and threatened. Why, do you know do we have a solid reason why? Should you want me to take this? You on? go. <laughs> You're my vulture um, expert. So historically, vultures have been some of the most, like, persecuted raptors in the world, right? Like, they tend to have this reputation of being, right. you know, gross or, you know, potentially Scavenger. like a bad omen, right? Yeah. right. Like, mm-hmm. you know, they're scavengers. Um, but that role as a scavenger is actually, like, 
critically important on a global scale for all ecosystems. Right. So we think of like raptors and apex predators being the things that sit at the top of the food chain. But when you look at a vulture, they are in this kind of unique position where they are even above those apex predators, right? They are an apex scavenger. They sit at the very, very top, above all things. And um, they help recycle nutrients back into the ecosystems much quicker. um, And they... I guess I won't get into, uh, I can get into the roles afterwards, but they, because of, of the way that they forage and eat and they scavenge, um, they're really, really sensitive to being poisoned, right? Oh. So earlier today we were talking about how, um, you know, DDT was a really, really, um, terrible toxin because of how it bioaccumulated in the, right. you know, in mm-hmm. organisms and, um, in the ecosystem, but with vultures, uh, if they eat anything that's contaminated with any kind of toxin, um, whether it's like lead or maybe even like some kind of, what is it, arsenic? Mm-hmm. Um, oh. A lot of the times in Africa, people will leave out a poisoned, you know, carcass to try and kill predators that might be hunting their sheep or oh, their right. cattle. Okay. Um, but then, you know, if a group of vultures come and eat that poisoned carcass, they will also die and when vultures you know feed on a carcass they're not just feeding one at a time it's typically groves of several dozen two hundreds and um a kind of unique issue that you find in places like africa or um asia are that um poachers who are you know poaching let's say elephants for Mm -hmm. their ivory um having groups of vultures come to feed on those carcasses was kind of like a big smoke signal of like, hey, come look at my crime. I just mm-hmm. left this, you know, oh. animal here that I've poached. So to kind of resolve that issue, poachers will then poison those carcasses. And then you have, you know, hundreds and hundreds of vultures that will feed on, you know, a carcass and they will die in these mass numbers. So you have things like poisoning, you have things like persecution um, that all kind of contribute to like a really wide-scale decline in these raptors. Right. Um, and then there's also like a small portion of um, vultures that are kind of targeted for like, you know, traditional medicine purposes and like that kind right. of distribution of parts, mm-hmm. but, you know, on like a, a legal market mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. also an issue. But the the main thing is actually poisoning that is kind of the biggest threat and and all of that's in addition to all the other things that raptors have to deal with right Right. like habitat loss and climate change and all these other things so it's kind of just being piled upon piled upon piled for these vultures and a great example of that even happening in the united states is with the california condor right right like lead was a really um big contributor to their decline right right there's other issues too um but Lead, yeah. Lead was a big one. And then they were also heavily persecuted. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing that. I hadn't really thought of that, you know, and and this idea of how the carcasses are treated based on all these different um, scenarios really hadn't, hadn't thought of that. So cool. Well, I think it's time for another song. So let's see. The next one I have for you is a song called Birds. Um, so, you know, Birds, okay. By Imagine Dragons, one of our sort of local uh, originated, I guess, in Utah bands. And yeah, we'll check it out. So this is Birds by Imagine Dragons. You're listening to KSU Thunder 91.1. Two hearts, one vow 
Popping the blood, we were the flood, we were the body and two lives, one life, sticking it out, letting you down, making it right. Welcome back. This is Lynn Vartan. You're listening to the Apex Hour. And I have Melissa and Isa here um, as part of, they they work for, uh, they are Hawkwatch International, uh, which is a group <laughs> of about 15, right? You have 15 full-time employees? Uh, like 13 to 15. It kind of depends on yeah. the, but not a lot. Yeah, it's small, small, but powerful, right? So, mm. We were talking, uh, you know, in our last um, uh, break about, you know, some of the issues and we were talking about the vultures and we were talking about, you mentioned the poisoning and climate change. And uh, one of the things that you did such a great job of, of helping us to understand in your talk today, 
has to do with solutions and the complexity of that. Uh, but I'd love to get into that a little bit more and just talk about, um, you know, how you see solutions for some of these declining populations and, and what people can do or can't do. Cause I think we are a little bit mistaken in some of the things that work and, you know, all that. So talk to me about solutions. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And honestly, I wish there was like a magic wand, right? <laughs> that there's just one answer, like, yeah. just do this and right. everything will be okay. And I also think, you know, across like, just science in general, people would answer this question really differently. For sure. Yeah. I mean, and because I think the reality is there is no one solution. There's no one thing. And even with the story of DDT that we told today, banning DDT wasn't that that didn't solve the whole problem right just one part it was just the beginning of a solution Mm -hmm. and even getting to that point required enough people to sort of speak up to their representatives and put enough pressure on the government to like take an action and so from there it took all kinds of different scientists and nonprofits and private citizens who used their dollars to help fund research and all those things to get to the point where we could make an impact on these raptors and bring them back from the brink of extinction. And so I, the metaphor I like to think of is like, we, we've been hearing a lot about diversity in the past, you know, decade or two, and probably should have been hearing more about it sooner. But I think this is something that ecologists have always understood that diversity is essential to healthy functioning of an ecosystem. The more organisms and like sort of components there are in an ecosystem, the more stable it is, the more resilient is the word we use. We used to call an ecosystem stable, but resilient is a much better word because there is no such thing as an ecosystem that isn't changing. Right. It's constantly right. changing right. and moving and right. parts are moving all the time. Which also means solutions. If we're like looking at, you know, talking solutions, like think maybe a better way to frame that is like, what is the approach to a problem? That right. is always going to be changing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. And, and, and recognizing that every little change is connected to a bunch of other things and adjusting, right? Like stopping to look, okay, what happened here? I mean, when you look at an ecosystems and population numbers, there's no population that's just a straight line. Right. Like it's going up and down all the time. And that's because it's responding to things. And so that's really what we need is we need to be able to to make changes, try things, experiment, respond to that, the, what we see happening. And we need the diversity of human thought and experience to make those new ideas work, right? To come up. I think one sort of metaphor I heard once for like why diversity is so important is like, if you have a team of engineers and um, they're trying to build the perfect sandwich, right? And they run out of mayonnaise. And so they decide to use ketchup instead. And so if those engineers are from, if they're all from America, they're going to go to their fridge and open the door and get the ketchup. And they might notice, hey, I also have some mustard in here. Like that could be good on the sandwich too. Whereas if you have engineers who are from Europe and parts of like Asia and the Middle East, they keep their ketchup in the cupboard Mm -hmm. instead of in the fridge. So when they go to open their cupboard and they see the ketchup and what's there in their cupboard, oh, vinegar and, Mm -hmm. you know, some soy sauce or something like they have a different experience and a different life, you know, sort of set of 
formative experiences, and that's going to affect how they think about things. So that creative solution building, we need all those different perspectives because something that might occur to Issa would probably never occur to me. Mm-hmm. But when we bring those all together, we have so many more tools in our toolbox to try and address these problems. So the power of the individual voice with the all of the experiences that make you who you are sound sound like a promising thing. But for people listening who say like, well, yeah, but what does that mean for, what does that really mean for me? You know, what, what do you say to people who, who want to help, who want to make a difference, who want to move forward? What, what do we do? Well, I think a really good place to start, and I said this already once today, but I think it's true, is to look at your local ecosystem because you are not separated from it. We live in a world with technology and houses and cars, and it can feel like we're really distant from our ecosystems. But all of those things, even the man-made ones, are part of that ecosystem. So what are the challenges in your ecosystem, in your backyard? What do you see being the biggest factor that is influencing the health and and sustainability of that ecosystem, right? Mm -hmm. And so once you start to identify those issues, And then ask yourself, how can I help this ecosystem be stronger and healthier? So, for example, here in Utah, we live in the second driest state in the nation, right? So you may look at something like your landscaping and say, okay, we are in a drought. It's not going away. It's not going to change. Are there simple things that I can do to reduce the amount of water that I need for this piece of grass that I walk on maybe twice a year. Right. Right. And so, but I, but I also don't, I want to be careful because not everybody has the ability to rip out their landscaping and put something new in. Right. That's expensive. Yeah. And frankly, right now there's no, sometimes some places there are, but in most places there's no sort of program to assist you in doing that. Right. right? Some places, sometimes you can get like a small credit on your water bill or things like that, but those things are not going to pay for themselves. Mm -hmm. And so the bigger and more important thing you can do is look at who are the people who make decisions in my community, right? right? Who are the local people who decide what our water ordinances are? How do I talk to them about the fact that, you know what? I don't think I need this much water because I don't think my grass is as important as making sure the rest of this ecosystem has enough, mm-hmm. you know, to, to thrive and survive. And so really the individual actions we take are great, but what we really need to do is change the system that is making decisions about that ecosystem. And so once we use our voices to kind of persuade those people or let those people know that this is important to us, that's going to be the most powerful tool because an ecosystem doesn't, I mean, they can vary in scale, of course, Mm -hmm. but your local ecosystem doesn't just include your yard. Mm -hmm. It includes your entire community, right? right? And the surrounding landscape. And so real solutions have to happen on that scale. And the best way to do that is to talk to the people who are in power and have the ability to make those decisions on that scale. Cool. Thank you for that. It's the call to action for everyone in that way. Well, there's one more topic. I mean, I could go on and on, but we're almost out of time. Um, There's one more topic I'd love to get to, and that is the birds that are in your Hawkwatch family. And one of the things that we loved about the website was we could not, when we saw that the birds have bios and the ones that you take out to meet people. And I was just kind of curious how that 
process happen? How does a bird come to be with you? Are you getting requests all the time? I mean, how does that all happen? How does Goose, the peregrine falcon, you know, come to be a Hawk Watch spokesperson, if you will, in a way? Issa and I are fighting over who gets to talk. Um, so all of our birds at Hawk Watch are wild animals. We always emphasize that with, with people. And for whatever reason, they can't be released back into the wild. So they're, you could call them rescues, I think is a good word for it. Um, some of them are physically healthy, but they are what we call human imprints. So if a bird is taken out of its nest from its parents at, at a young age, they can really not learn the skills that they need to succeed in the wild. It doesn't mean that they think they're human or that they think we are birds. They just don't. We're not very good at teaching birds how to be birds. Right. You know, because we're humans. Right. We can. It, it can happen. It, it does happen sometimes, but it can be tough. And especially if by the time a bird gets into a rehabber, a lot of the time, whoever quote unquote rescued it has spent too much time with it already for it to really recover. So we have a couple birds that are imprints so they can fly, their bodies are sound, but they don't know how to hunt. And I call it the pizza syndrome. It's like, why make dinner every night when I can just, someone's just going to bring me the pizza that's all right. ready to go, right? So right. in some ways, maybe they're smart. I don't know. It seems like <laughs> they've figured it out. So, and then we also have birds that are, have injuries that have made it impossible for them. So the two birds we brought, we ha- brought a peregrine falcon named Goose. She's an imprint. She was a falconer's bird. They were, falconry is a sport where you hunt, you use falcons to hunt animals. So obviously your falcon has to know how to hunt. Yeah. And she escaped from her Whoever had her, we never found her owner. Um, she was starving. So clearly that process had not gone as it should have. Right. Um, so she's an imprint. And then we also brought a screech owl named Artemis. Artemis was the, uh, the victim of a vehicle collision. Oh. And so Artemis had some damage to her eye. So in one of her eyes, she has essentially no vision. And unfortunately, that just makes it really difficult for her to navigate and to hunt. Vision is is the most important sense that raptors have to be successful. So all the birds are in our care for the rest of their lives. And we have a permit from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service for education. And as a requirement from that permit, we literally, they have to do education. They have a job and they're our coworkers and our partners. We really think of it that way. Like they kind of have to, they have to earn those mice and those quail that we feed them, you know? And so, you know, the, uh, the other alternative for them would be euthanasia. Wow. And so this is an opportunity for the bird to have a really good life. I mean, they're spoiled. We take really good care of them. Yeah. And I think as you saw today, when you meet a bird like that face to face, like I can talk about science all day long, but ultimately like 30 seconds with that bird for many people is so much more impactful Yeah. or at least makes what I say have a context that becomes meaningful to them. So you, do you always have a certain number of birds? Or do do you do you have someone who goes around to rescues looking for candidates? I mean, how does that part of the pro? Do, do people call you and say, "I found a bird, please take it in"? I <laughs> they mean, call. They, yeah, people call us all the time, but we're not a rehab center, right. so we do work with rehabbers, and oftentimes we'll help people get birds to rehabbers because what we can do is catch and handle birds like Issa is actually really great with wild birds um having spent time in migration Issa knows how to capture a bird without hurting themselves and without hurting the bird right so we'll often help people like get birds to rehabbers but 
really it's limited by how much space we have. So we have, you know, each bird has its own enclosure. It's not, it's free flighted. They can move around wherever they want inside that enclosure. And then they also get outside every day that we have a weathering yard where they get to have sun and Mm -hmm. some stimulation, you know, some enrichment in that way. And so we can't really get a new bird until we have space for a new bird. Mm -hmm. And in human care, raptors can live a long time. Right. I was wondering, I bet that because they're safe and healthy Mm -hmm. and And they go to the vet and they you know they get fed they get vitamins and supplements and and i want to be one of those birds i think (laughs) sometimes i think they get a little they get little pedicures you know we i mean that's not true we but we do like oil their feet and take care of them um and so depending on the species we might have and a lot of times we don't know how old a bird is when we get it right right but if we get a bird that's young it can be with us, you know, depending on the species, anywhere from ten to fifty years. Our eagles 50 can years, eagles right. can go fifty years. So, wow. you know, we have a red-tailed hawk right now that's thirty-one years old, oh. and so he's kind of semi-retired. He's our old man, and that may be a record. We're not sure. We're kind of trying to figure that out. But and how really does their old. behavior? Does their behavior change as they age? Yes. I mean, like any, just like a human, right? You're, they get arthritis, um, oh. you know, they can have strokes and, and wow. organ issues. And, and it's interesting because you see behaviors in geriatric birds that you don't see in the wild because most wild birds don't live that long. Right. So sometimes we have people, you know, who are volunteers or things that are helping us and they get alarmed that a bird is laying down or exhibiting a behavior. But, you know, as we talk to our vet, a lot of times it's just, you don't see that in the wild because they don't make, they don't live that long. And, and we were talking about in the car between 50 and 60% of raptors don't survive their first year. So once you get through that first year as a raptor, you usually, you're an apex predator. So you usually have a pretty good shot, you know, of course, nature is nature. So you're always at risk, but it's it's possible to live a, a pretty decent lifespan and wow. human care just makes it a lot longer. Thank you so much. Well, one, once again, the website is hawkwatch.org. Um, go and check it out. Look at the programs, read about them and learn more about all the great work that's going on at Hawkwatch International. I have one last question that I ask everyone. And that question is, what's turning you on this week? And it doesn't have to have anything to do with your job. It's just sort of a fun, um, you know, little thing for people to find out. Um, it could be a TV show. It could be a movie. It could be a book. It could be a song. It could be a food. It could be anything at all. So I'm going to ask you guys. So Melissa, what's turning you on this week? So I just finished The Song of Achilles by Madeline Miller. Did you love it? I loved it. It was so great. And I had already read Circe uh, first. Yeah. But Madeline Miller, fantastic. If I mean, it's just really great. It's a retelling of essentially the Iliad. Yeah. but. So good. So much better. So, so many feels. It was a great book. Okay, cool. Thank you. Issa, what's turning you on this week? I'm going to keep this raptor related. It's fall migration. So what's turning me on this week is the sky, just looking around. Uh Um, During migration, it's the time of year to see raptors that don't typically stay here in Utah. So you can see some pretty cool species flying by. So check out your local we saw it on the way down. Sky. Yeah. What did you, was it a broad wing top? Mm-hmm. Which is one that's not typical around here. It's migrating. 
Oh my gosh, I bet being on a road trip with you guys is really fun because you could point out all the birds. <laughs> or like insufferable. <laughs> I think fun. But on that note, we're going to sign off for this week. Um, Isa and Melissa, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me about Hawkwatch International and these amazing apex predators that are all around us. Thank you. All right, we'll see everybody next week. Thanks so much for listening to the Apex Hour here on KSUU Thunder 91.1. Come find us again next Thursday at 3 p.m. for more conversations with the visiting guests at Southern Utah University and new music to discover for your next playlist. And in the meantime, we would love to see you at our events on campus. To find out more, check out suu.edu slash apex. Until next week, this is Lynn Vartan saying goodbye from the Apex Hour here on Thunder 91.1.